On this week's edition of the podcast, Brendan and Chris assess Simon Halliday's comments on the future of the English second tier, focus on the Under-20 Rugby World Cup and England squad for the main event, look ahead to the Rugby Championship and finish by reminiscing about England's tour of hell, which ended 25 years ago on Tuesday. Hello and welcome to this week's edition of the Rugby Pet Podcast. I'm Nick Powell filling in as guest host for Ollie Little. I'm joined by the Rugby Papers expert columnists, Brendan Gallagher and Chris Hewitt, who will, as always, be providing their insights on another busy week for rugby news. Today on the podcast, we have a lot to discuss from the Under-20s Rugby World Cup to England's squad for the main event in September. And we look ahead to uh, the more recent international rugby competition coming up, the Rugby Championship. But before all that, let's get stuck into the news from the front page of the paper last week with the headline... Halliday's Collective Ultimatum. So this is the news that Simon Halliday, newly elected chairman of the championship, has said the clubs of that league simply won't have enough money to continue to exist without current without changes to the current funding they receive. So I've got a question for each of you here, Brendan and Chris. Brendan, what do you think should happen? And after that, Chris, tell us what you think will happen. Well, that's a bit of a googly first up there, Nick. Thanks for that. Um, <laughs> What should happen is, has been long discussed. Um, it is good we got Simon Halliday involved. Great bloke, rugby bloke, very sharp business mind. Knows the pitfalls of RFU. Um, so that's good. I think Hallers has obviously been pressing the flesh, talking to everybody, and has realised very quickly what a serious mess this is. We've, we've been here many times before. It needs a complete reset. It needs a complete reset. The championship, you know, the division two of English rugby needs to be under the umbrella of premiership rugby. There needs to be one organisation. Call it premiership rugby. Let's not deny them the title. But it needs to include the top 24 clubs in England, those who have any pretensions to play professional or semi-professional rugby. That needs to be one organisation. It needs to have uh, a group of sponsors, uh, which benefits everybody. It, you'll, it needs to probably have one TV deal. It is conceivable that you have a second TV deal for the championship and you make Friday night the championship night. Uh, everybody needs to know where they stand. Everybody shares what um, collective monies there are. Um, that's not going to happen. I'll leave Chris to discuss that. But there will have to be waiting for the the more senior clubs who have put more into the premiership um, product. But you need to have broadly the same amount of money. You need absolutely guaranteed promotion and relegation. It can't be the rug can't be pulled out suddenly at three months' notice. Uh, it needs to be much fairer for the clubs coming up. Uh, they need to be on a on a better financial footing compared with the others. Uh, the clubs coming down need to know that that's not the end of life as we know it. There's going to be a great vibrant division two, which will be on TV to help the sponsors. Uh, and generally, everybody needs to up their game. And they just need to look over the channel. We've said it a hundred times before. But my God, they've got it right. That is the template. They have been the ones. They've forged the template. There it is for us. Don't bother looking anywhere else. That is the template. Do it. Now, whether there's a will with the RFU to do that uh, and the Premiership Rugby to do that, I don't know. And I think I'll kick that one over to Chris now to tell us what exactly will happen. Well... I'm surprised you're both here because England are looking for spinners. 
and and um, I can't I can't quite quite see why why you're not ha- having either test practice in Headingley because I don't know which way the balls are going at the moment. Um, I, I think Brendan's uh, heart is entirely in the right place on this. Um, the the fr- the French model. Um, which some of us have been banging on for years. And in fact, Bill Sweeney, the chief executive of the Rugby Football Union, if he's not on record, is saying he has certainly said in my hearing that if if English if English rugby could have the French model, they would have it tomorrow. Of course they would. Um, the French have a number of advantages. It is not a massive football-driven country in the way England is. So rugby is not eaten alive by football in terms of profile in the way that it is in England. So that's a that's a that's a big thing that rugby can't do anything about. So there's one obstacle you've got already. There is an awful lot of municipal support and money uh, and 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 the the easing of people's realization of ambitions in France that we simply don't have here. We don't have a public private funding. Uh, system or situation that the French have. A lot of them play on municipal grounds. So that's one huge expense that they're not shouldering. Um, It's not a game that's colonised completely by the private schools in France. It's a club-driven system. You know, we're talking about how do we make rugby a bit of a game for the people? Well, you know, a game for the people to me means lots of people, not the 7% of the people who go to fee-paying schools. But so we're we're already in in weirdo political waters here as to some of the obstructions that face the development of the game in England if you're going to compare it to what's going on in France. Having said all that, uh, I do think that um, I completely agree that, uh, uh, that as the French do with with top fourteen and pro and pro de deux, um, they're under the same umbrella. Uh, those French, those French second-tier teams have their own time on the stage. Uh, a Thursday night game, largely the Friday night, uh, the Friday night slot is a second-tier slot as far as television is concerned, and the top fourteen is played Saturday, Sunday. Generally speaking, um, I think that should be happening here. I do think that there should be a much more generous sharing of of the available resources. I do think that there should be a joint push for sponsorship, which is only really going to succeed if the sponsors get the profile that persuades them <laughs> that the money they're spending is worth spending. So all, all those all those things can be done. They can be done. But you need a couple of things. You need, well, you need three things, actually. You need the second division club's and they were described as fragmented in the past by Nick in his piece last week, and he's absolutely right. You don't want clubs in the championship or in the second tier who have no intention of or desire to get promoted. It's a waste of time. It's a waste of everyone's time. So you need some serious teams. And if that's just eight teams, then it's just eight teams. That's okay, but you can't have a team that's going to say we're going to be amateur come what may, and if we lose by forty points every week, so be it. That's a that's pointless. They shouldn't be in that league. If you're going to have a second, if you're going to have a professional league, it's got to be professional. So you need to find ways of making that possible, and that sponsorship and central funding and all all the things that go around it. 
I also agree with Brendan that the sides who are in that second division need to be treated far more fairly and far more equitably than they have in recent years. And and this whole thing about you've got to have a 10,000-seater stadium or a 12,000-seater stadium or whatever it is, is pointless. If Luton Tank can get into the Premier League with the, with, with the, with the facilities they currently have available to them, then I'm sure that Premier Premiership Rugby can handle a Bedford or a Coventry or a, or a whoever, or an Ealing, or a Jersey. I mean, crikey, Jersey ought to have some money behind them. Nobody pays any tax over there, so that gives them a massive start. Um, I, I do So I do think that there has got to be a much greater collective intent on the part, on the part of the second-tier teams to make a proper fist of it and not just be a pain in the neck. And I think that's where Simon Halliday was coming from, in part. And he's talking about that collectivity that they've negotiated amongst themselves and they're they're, they're putting forward the United Front. Well, brilliant. And if Simon can deliver that, then that'll be the best thing he's done in rugby, including his England career. That will be the best thing he's done in rugby. If he can make, if he can live up to that pledge, then then the guy should be knighted because that that will take some doing. You put your finger on a really big problem there, Chris, though, um, with Bedford. Everybody needs to be professional and want to go up. Now, Bedford, as we well know, nearly went out of business. They had a soul-searching session a long time ago and said, we are going to run a, a viable business here. They get 3,500, which is more or less capacity, every home match. they got a good group of sponsors. Uh, they don't pay their players too much, but they pay them as much as they can. They are great. In many ways, they are a model little club. But they do at the moment, they do not want to take that quantum leap get back up into the premiership if they were allowed to do that and risk all, you know, they would see that if they had a disastrous season up there, sign players they couldn't afford, that would wipe the club out. And Bedford is a proper little rugby town. Absolutely no doubt about it. So what do you do? Bedford actually are in many ways, a club that could make that leap again. If, if Simon can go and talk to them and somehow get that mindset changed, Somehow reassure them that there is going to be equity financially, that the the, the cavalry is coming financially, um, that there is minimal danger in the club being wiped out if you if you step forward and go for a promotion. And yeah, they, they would they they would you know they are absolutely um, typical, not typical, absolutely um, model team in many ways. But they need to change their mindset if they're going to be part of this. And if they don't want to be part of it, then I'm worried because if they can't be part of it, who can be? You know, Bedford have got a lot going for them as a rugby town and a rugby club. I don't just um, and they've retreated into themselves, and they need to know that they can now expand and come out of themselves again. I don't, I don't disagree with that at all, and and I think I'm right in saying that in France, the side, the side or sides, because two can come up if they get through, if both get through the playoff, um, they get a bigger cut of the central funding available than the existing clubs. So Oyana would have more of a percentage from his, of the central funding than Toulouse. Well, fantastic. Uh, that, 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 goes to, that goes to the American sports system and its draft and all that kind of thing. And we've said before on this podcast, you know, American sport is quite often, you know, wittily known as socialism for rich people. I mean, they do, they do understand the basic necessity for their their showpiece shop window events to be 
properly competitive. No one wants to see a side come up from, from the championship and lose by 60 points every week because that's pretty pointless also. And, and the, you know, rugby hurts. It hurts to play. It hurts to pay for it. Um, some of the ticket prices hurt. I mean, rugby is quite a painful game. And if you're not getting much fun out of it, you're going to lose people. Mm-hmm. So there, there's a lot to consider here. But, but, but I do think that the championship is very important. I do think it's been badly treated. I also think it's let itself down in certain respects. You know, Jeff Irvin, who was, who was chairman at Bedford, ran Bedford rugby for many, many years and was a terrific rugby bloke. But if, if he said, we're quite happy to be the 14th best side in the country every year, once, he said it a thousand times. And while I understand the logic of that, I'm not sure what it's doing for the game. I'm not sure yeah. what it's doing for the wider product. The the big thing that rugby needs to, yeah, you know, I mean, if we, if if, we, if they're not really seriously going to make the championship work or try to make it work, then it has to rugby has to ask itself if it's going to go to a franchise system. And do you not think that, it's? Um, I was just going to say, do you not think it's time for the teams that are in PRL to wake up? Excuse me, they've they've had this situation where they've been able to take more money out of any out, out of the premiership share than any team or the share of the TV rights, et cetera, than any team that's come up that wasn't a member of PRL. But surely now it's getting to the point where even they, in the position that they are, are starting to realise that it's completely unsustainable. How, how mad do you need to be? Seriously, I ask this. How mad do you need to be in this situation with three clubs that have just gone to the war with the wider economic situation that the country faces, and it's not just rugby, all, all sorts of sports are, are up against it in terms of financing. How crackers do you need to be or just utterly dismissive of the optics to vote to put the salary cap back up? Which is what the Premiership have managed to do. Now, the Bruce Craigs and the Stephen Lansdowns and what have you, the wealthier owners, would all say, Nigel Ray probably, um, Tony Rowe, I mean, those are the four clubs that are generally talked of in this regard. Uh, We'd all say, I mean, they're they're basically free market fundamentalists. And that's fine. You know, they can afford afford to do it. Stephen Lansdowne can afford to do it. But if if you're going to have a four-team premiership because everyone else has gone bust, is champions of a 14 premiership something worth celebrating i mean i'm not sure it is it's just daft so that this beggar thy neighbor we can afford it so we're going to spend it attitude and just because you haven't got it you're not going to stop us having it that that's nonsense rugby's in far too fragile a place to have that kind of selfishness i i mean i i'm i'm agog with amazement that they put the salary cap back up it's crazy utterly crazy and it sends out some terrible signals yeah, completely, completely. Uh, Brendan, did you have anything to add on that? Well, I, there is, I just, I've always been struck by the extraordinary irony of the Premiership preaching to the Championship about finances and criteria and what you need to do to be good enough to come up here and how you've got to run your club. Uh, b- before the three clubs, Premiership clubs went bust this season, they had a collective debt of nearly five hundred million pound, which is hardly an example to the to the Championship. So I just it gets my goat that they, they they get so preachy about how you have to run a rugby club. The fact is, in 25 years, the sad fact is that Premiership Rugby has shown it's got no idea 
how to run a professional league. So why they should get so uptight about other people try, trying to join the party and maybe better better things, I've no idea. Well, yeah, I mean, it's it's not just in the uh, in the club game that France seem to be succeeding rather a lot at the moment. They've won the last two under twenties World Cups, um, and and they're on track to do the same. You know, England just about sneaking through, um, but what a change overall from from eight years ago when uh, if you t- well uh, seven years ago if you take twenty sixteen, an English team won the Champions Cup, England won the Junior uh, Rugby World Cup and had won every single game in competition. They're now struggling in the senior game. They have made it through in the under-20s, which we're just about to touch on, but obviously their league is in a bit of a state. But how impressed have you two been from what you've seen in the under-20s World Cup with this French team? Oh, terrific. Um, Belting, belting. Uh, And they're missing their two best players with the World Cup squad. Um, They just produced this conveyor belt of not just... Talented. They've always had talent, but um, clever, clever, smart players who seem to be mental age of about 24, rugby-wise, which makes you wonder what's happening academy-wise, our academy players, the French academy players. A lot of them, of course, get much more rugby. They get starts every week in, in Pro D2 and Federal 1, National 1. And some of them, of course, have played T14, Top 14 already uh, to quite a large extent. But no, they, they are an adornment. I'd be amazed if they didn't win this tournament. Um, it, it, I've enjoyed it. I've, I've been lucky enough to see quite a bit of it. England are a bit of a, a curate's egg. They've been very good on occasions. England weren't cracking in the Six Nations, but they they fronted up a few times. Uh, but last half hour yesterday against Australia, they completely went to sleep. It was like watching the under-14Bs. They just didn't have that rugby intellect and talent uh, and rugby intelligence uh, that France seemed to have. Georgia have won two and extraordinarily not qualified for the semi-finals, even though they got more group points than South Africa did. In fact, New Zealand got more group points than South Africa did. So there's a there's a bit of a format issue with the under-20s. It always has been 12 teams, four pools, and you've got to get four teams for the semis. So a lot depends on which is the weaker pool as to which, which pool that fourth semi-finalist came out of. Uh, but no, I've really enjoyed it. Uh, Italy, a famous win over South Africa, and they didn't just beat South Africa. They absolutely thumped them in the rain. Um, so that that was great to see. And they, they've been missing a couple of their top players with injury. So again, strength and depth there. Wales nearly beat New Zealand. Uh, no, it's thoroughly enjoyable. And and the, the semi-finals and finals this weekend, the middle of next week, are going to be well worth watching because there's some top rugby players there on view. It, 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 I, I agree. I agree again uh, with, with with everything Brendan said. I mean, France are obviously terrific. Uh, I mean, I mean they're a very good side. I think their whole setup there is tremendous. It, it's you know through youth rugby, it's a club driven culture, very club driven culture. They're playing a lot of competitive rugby. These guys, um, and, and of course with the uh, with the league system as it operates in France and goes down below Pro D uh, Pro D um uh, there, there's a, a lot of game time available for the for, for the youngsters. Um, I do. I take great pleasure in the fact that sides that have been the, the nations that have had a really rough time, like Wales, like Georgia, to an extent politically, because of what's happening with this Nations Cup idea, can use an under twenties tournament to just say, "Hang on a moment, we're still here. We're still here. We can still land a punch." And I'm also interested to see that the Australians who 
you know, blow really, really hot and cold in this tournament. I mean, the Australians had a great, great tradition of sensational schools teams coming over here back in the day and what have you. But but they do a, they do seem to me to produce to be producing some big, strong, powerful, you know, back row forwards and you know a decent scrum half and all, all the things that used to make Australian rugby Wallaby rugby brilliant. And you can you can see little signs of that in that side who've done quite well in this tournament. England, I do think they have some very good players. I mean, and Lewis Chesson, oh yeah, he seem, does seem to take the whole the whole world on. He takes everything on his shoulders. Um, he's 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 like um, he's like a talkative Martin Johnson, really. Um, he has plenty to say to the referee. He'll he'll calm down um, as as things go on. But the Chesson brothers. Um, are, are some very significant signs of hope for English rugby. All is not lost while the Chessons are around. Um, they, as Brenda said, and how about that young hooker Nathan Jibalu from um, yeah, yeah. What, what a operator he is! I, I hadn't wing, got him. Cassius, Cassius Clay or whatever he was. Cassius Cleaves is <laughs> suspect. Um, yeah, he, <laughs> he, he can finish. That's all, that's all quite good. I mean, we we've we've seen quite we've seen quite a lot from 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 the top ending the players. They do switch off massively, um, and they start and they make some pretty basic errors. Also, passing skills just go occasionally. Don't yeah, they? yeah, and 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 skills under pressure. That was you know that's that's always the um, that's always the sign of a great side. You know, anyone can flick all those clever passes and what have you when you're thirty points up. But when you're trying to defend a lead in tournament rugby with ten minutes, fifteen minutes left on the clock. Then that's that's when your yeah. that's when your skills are tested. So um, um, I think they'll struggle. To, they'll they'll struggle to beat the French, I would imagine. Um, but hey, they made the semi-finals on the All Blacks, haven't? So there is a god. Yeah, the All Blacks. Yeah, I wanted to actually mention them, um, but uh, we obviously slam the RFU quite often on this podcast. Uh, but I did want to did want to put forward: Have the RFU done? Do they deserve credit? Should I say for the job that they've done to keep? the under 20s pathway going as as consistent as it's been it's not as strong relative to the rest of the world as it used to be um but i think the first four or five finals of this competition were contested mm. by england and new zealand france have come through having not been in a final i think until 2018 to really stamp their authority on the competition but if you compare england to new zealand um why why have New Zealand fallen away to the extent they have? And and uh, from an English point of view, do you think the RFU do deserve credit for keeping? I, them I would certainly give credit to the RFU, and, and I'm old enough to have. I can remember do, um, doing a load of stories on the the foundation of the original under twenty one side in nineteen ninety two ninety three with John Elliott, and that was a, that that very team straight away gave us Lawrence Delalio, Matt Dawson, Richard Hill, Kieran Bracken, a whole you know um, galaxy of great players. They stick with it, and they've done very well. What the trouble with the RFU is not no, it's not the RFU. The trouble with the English system is what happens to these guys when they've got to a semi-final or final, the under twenty World Cup, which they do with fantastic regularity, fair play. But what happens to those guys then for the next eighteen months? We don't see half of them. And here's a little stat, uh, not a stat, but a little observation: Dupontier came eighth in the under twenty World Cup, and and he wasn't the only star. They had seven or eight really good players. But what happens, of course, and they, I, I haven't got the detail of the pools, they probably got a bit unlucky and got the mm -hmm. Kiwis in the first and then whatever. But their players, of course, as we've discussed, immediately got loads of rugby. They graduated straight from the under-20s to 
um, Prodi Deux or Dupont was playing for Castor as an 18-year-old, 19-year-old, coming off the bench every match, basically. Um, so that is that's where the system has, has gone wrong, I think, for England. The, the guys who run the under-20s are generally terrific. There's always a pretty good load of talent, and they normally play pretty well. So no complaints there whatsoever. It's just how we then handle the talent once it comes out of that system. I don't think England have a vast problem amongst the, the real creme de la creme. They're, they're producing good players. Mm. One of the problems with the academy system, and I think it has improved in recent years, but not all academies are big enough to field teams, or they certainly weren't. There doesn't seem to be, a, you know, um, an absolutely set in stone fixture list where people are getting a full season's rugby out of this stuff. I mean, Wasps were a brilliant academy. Under, under Rob Smith back in the day, fantastic academy. Um, all their players were brilliant. The trouble was there were only eight of them. So what? So Wasps are immediately, in terms of competitive rugby week on week, taken out of, of the system. They they didn't have enough blokes to, to play, you know, to, to, to form a team. All your Joe Worsies and all those guys, Cipriani's and what have you, I mean, they're all you know. Fabulous players, but they just went for the very, very small, absolute top of the tree talent and developed them. Um, so that's fine. Other teams like Leicester and what have you and Bath had more players in the academy and they were looking for matches to play. But of course, you can't play, you can't play the same opponents every week. So I do, I do, I would like to see a much better bedded-in system of, of, of competitive rugby for those academy players, some of whom aren't going to be ready to be sitting on the bench at, at premiership level. And, of yeah. course, hell of a lot of teams don't run second teams now. I mean, that second team tournament is a bit hit and miss, to say the very least. So there's a there's a paucity of rugby around. Um, and and it's been an issue. But at the very elite end, your Lewis Chessons and, 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 and the hooker in the left wing and a couple of others, they're going to be fine and they're going to be... Yeah, pretty big names if they stay injury free and they handle properly. So I think in that respect, yes, England England do have uh, a bank of good players, and um, and and going forward, those under twenty should continue to produce for them. Yeah, well, it's not the most natural segue in the world when we're talking about the promising under twenties players uh, to an England squad that contains two scrum halves that have a combined age of seventy. <laughs> That's a very good. Segue. However. <laughs> Uh, it is a topic that's definitely worth discussing. Um, I'll, I'll start with you, Chris. I, I'm just wondering what your reflections are on that squad and whether you feel it gives any kind of indication as to the direction that Steve Borthwick wants to take his team for this World Cup. I don't get it. I, I, I mean, the two obvious the two obvious surprises, um, Alex Mitchell and Zach Mercer not making the cut, I don't understand I don't pretend, and I know both of it pretty well, really, from down, down the years, and I do not pretend to understand. We, we, you know, we're not privy, are we, to exactly what goes on at Penny Hill Park or wherever they are. Um, you know, these people could have said, said a few things out of place. They could have shown an attitude that Steve and, and his fellow coaches didn't like very much. I, I rather think that's unlikely. Um, but you have to remember that Zach Mercer... When he left Montpellier, he was given a standing ovation by the crowd. And apparently Montpellier crowds do not um, get bums off seats to applaud people, particularly English people, um, who were uh, 
uh, bidding a fond farewell to the club, he had a standing ovation. Um, and Northampton reacted to Alex Mitchell's failure to make the cut by putting out a highlights package of his best rugby in the last season, which was rather pointed. I don't think they said anything in in terms on the on the subject, but they certainly it was illustrative of their displeasure. I think we can probably say. Uh, though, so those two decisions, I simply don't get. I think Alex Mitchell's the best scrum half in England. I'm I, I'm bemused by the fact that that Ben Youngs, much as I think he's been a fine servant and all that kind of thing, thing but I still think he's pretty poor on the back foot uh, under pressure. Um, I still think that Danny Kerr can only be uh, less zapped up a bit off the bench. Um, and Jack Van Portfleet, who is at the other end of the age scale, well, aren't we all? I mean, I'm younger than Ben Youngs. Um, uh, he didn't have the best of six nations I mean Steve Borthwick you know Steve Borthwick worked with him at Leicester he knows everything about Jack well that's fine that's fine if if, if that's who he trusts then that's absolutely that's absolutely okay but I don't see that Alex Mitchell did anything particularly wrong in the limited chances he's had in an England in in an England team to be Cut out of the cut out of the thing so early. I mean, it's old. And and Zach, Zach Mercer to me. I mean, I I don't. He's just got all the footwork and all the rug, the rugby intelligence. And Brendan was talking about just now. He's got all of that stuff, and he's played seasons in France, which would have, to use the old cliche, made a man of him for sure. So he's a different player now than when he left Bath. Uh, and uh, I'm astonished that he has fallen behind. The Don Brants and Tom Willis's and what have you, you know, much they may have to offer, but I'm bemused, completely bemused by that uh, by that selection. Yeah, Brendan, I'll get your reflections as well. I mean, obviously, it's it's difficult to understand potentially from the outside looking in, but can you think of any reason why he's gone down the route that he's gone down? Has he tried to go for old heads, people that have been in the team? or featured prominently in the team in, in the case of the Youngs and Care for the last decade or two, um, and other players that have been around have been around through the sort of Eddie Jones era. Is that is that the direction he's going and then potentially looking to reshape it after the World Cup? Is there you know, is there any I wish I could I wish I could tell you, Maestro, I'm bemused as Chris, you know, this is bemused from Copthorne here. Um Listen, Tom Willis is a very fine player. And if you'd asked me, in fact, I might have even mentioned it a couple of months ago, you know, outsiders for the World Cup, I would definitely have said Tom Willis is in with a shout. Very good season with Bordeaux in different in difficult circumstances. But again, the point I would make is England seem to have been in camp for six weeks already. What I don't understand is Willis comes in as Mercer is kicked out, basically. If these two were contending for the last place as number eight, I'd want them in camp together for three weeks, locking horns, going going at it in the gym, going at it on the pitch. Um, I saw some quotes the other day. Borthwick seems to be putting great store by performances at training. He, he mentioned that um, Tom Pearson had been blowing the Watt bike up and creating all sorts of records. Um, Henry Arundel did 10-7 in his boots after an hour's fitness session, still did 10-7 for the 100. They're obviously really monitoring and measuring these guys. But... I don't see how any monitoring and measuring between Tom Willis uh, and and uh, your man could be done. I mean, they just haven't been in camp together, just as Ben Spencer was never in camp with the guys that he was meant to be competing with at Scrum Hart. And that, to me, is, is, is you're missing 
the some a big opportunity for what what a World Cup camp should be. As Chris says, you don't know what has been going on behind closed doors. We don't know what the conversations are. We don't know. I can't imagine there's been any uh, disciplinary issues. I think we would have heard about that. So we have to take the selection on face value. He thinks Tom Willis is a better bet than Zach Mercer. I don't think that at all. He thinks that Alex Mitchell's not good enough to play for England in a World Cup. I disagree with that totally. Uh, but, you know, when we don't select the team. What, what I don't understand is why you have Ben Young's and Danny Kerr in the squad. I think what about Dickie Jeeks if he'd been available? <laughs> exactly. Um, you know, there's only need for one old, old dog, and I just don't see any need for two. I'm quite intrigued that Danny Kerr has, has been a bit of a constant. Um, there's never been any suggestion that he's going to be kicked out uh, or make, not make the cut. It seems to me that Marcus Smith might have quite a role in Steve Borthwick's New England. He's promising all sorts, isn't he, Steve Borthwick? In, in one interview I saw, you know, lots of surprises. Um, so if Marcus Smith has got a big influence somewhere, it sort of makes sense to have Danny Kerr to compliment him, to, to you know, help him fire. But I don't get it. I did, The bottom line is I don't get the nine selections. I don't get the number eight selections. And I also, Vuny Polo has gone in for a second knee operation, and he's still in the squad. And, and those, are, those are spine positions. We're talking spine positions. It's yeah. not about dipping around on the left wing. These are spine. Mm. I mean, I know every position is important before left wings, uh, the world over, start shouting and screaming at the podcast. But it, it's um, those are decision the headlines there. That, well, those are decision making positions. Now, where do they think that Alex Mitchell doesn't make enough right decisions in, in the right places? Um, who knows? Uh, you know, uh, you know, Ben Youngs and, and Danny Kerr have gone around the block so often that they do know they do understand how the game is played. And they're not going to be short of fitness. I mean, Kerr's a freak, isn't he? So um, you know, I I mean I, I admire their longevity in many ways, but it just it just seems to me that Mitchell is one of those people who has brought a point of difference to the teams he plays for and 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 demands the attention of opposition back rows and you know the you know the, the close in defenses around rucks and walls because he is a he is a he, he is an absolute brilliant absolutely brilliant breaker of the line terrific and he's difficult to plan for and he's got a lovely quick service and, and it's not coincidence that Saints are the top try scorers and he can't be held responsible that they also give away more tries than anybody else he gets that Saints back division absolutely yeah. humming whether it be yeah. by quick service or great great eye for the break. And speed of service is not something we could claim for all England scrum house of reason. No. <laughs> I think it's fair to say. Um, and, and Mercer, he just seems to play with... I mean, when he was down at Bath, he played with enormous intelligence because he wasn't the biggest and he was using his footwork and his and and, and his uh, and his angles and what have you to survive in the heavy traffic and play his football. He's a real football in number eight. I mean, I think Don Brown's got some football about him also, in fairness. Mm. But but Mercer is, you know, the the way I look at it is he's he had, he had a wonderful season in a Montpellier side that won the title, and he had a wonderful season in a Montpellier side that struggled. So it's not as though he's been on the yellow brick road over there. He's had his he's had his issues or the team for whom he's played, has had their issues, and he's come through it as a star name in a bitterly contested 
club competition. Now, he hasn't had much international rugby because he's been playing over there. That's true. But, cranky, I mean, maybe I look at the wrong things. Many people would say I do. We're very good at predicting doomsday on this podcast. Um, and I certainly have as a pundit, although I think that would be a bit of a stretch to describe myself as that. Um, but I am keen to to just get into what you think or how bad do you think it would be if England, say they lose to Argentina in the first game, end up with a quarterfinal against Australia and uh, and lose that game? I mean, do you think there's even a possibility that Borthwick, who was who didn't really have a honeymoon period in the end after losing his first game against Scotland, mm. do you think there's a, a possibility that people, that English rugby supporters are going to turn against his leadership? And if it is a bad World Cup... Where does that leave English rugby with the domestic game struggling and the international game? In, in well, yeah, I mean, I think I think the minimum England need is a is a a brave quarterfinal defeat. Anything less than that, I think you're back onto the slippery road of he's got to go and it's not good enough. And you know who is there in the world game who can you know how much is it going to cost to get Rog over or something like that? Because you know it wouldn't be acceptable. Um, anything less than that, I mean. All is not lost. There's loads of good players in that England squad. And me and Chris both covered the 2007 World Cup when it was probably um, almost as bad in terms of what England, expectations of England. Uh, and then, of course, they had the famous 36-0 defeat against South Africa. It couldn't have been worse. That was rock bottom. And they still reached the final. It's cut rugby. England have got some warriors there, some hardened warriors. One or two of the blokes might come through. Arundel might absolutely... Hit, hit the World Cup flying. I, I've got high hopes for Tom Pearson. Um, Courtney Lords could be revitalised. David, if he is not, David Ribbons could put some stick about. There's there's some good, really good players there. All is not lost. But anything less than, than a, a brave quarterfinal defeat and the questions will immediately come pouring in again. I think they'll be, I think they'll be highly competitive because England size gem, generally are. Um, I mean, the start of that 2007 tournament was was a bit of a shocker. But he, he, even when they, even when they got, you know, they they were blown out in 2015. Um, you know, that was a d- dangerous Fiji side that they played first up, and they had a bonus point victory and what have you. And the Wales game was just a, um, a, a bit of a sort of calamity, wasn't it? Um, in the end, but they were in control of that game for very, very, you know, for for 70 minutes or whatever it was. So. I do think they'll be competitive uh, this autumn because, as Brendan says, the standard of player they have available to them, even even in light of recent selection decisions, is high. But whether they're good enough and and confident enough and coherent enough and have the rugby intelligence, the collective rugby intelligence, to come through a tight game. I mean, if, if it's really tight in the last 10 against Argentina, let's say whether they're quite in a position to come through that as more familiar England sides would have been probably, I, I think that, I mean, that's the fascination in tournaments, isn't it? Because, you know, World Cup, World Cups really are winner bust. Uh, whether, whether if England bomb out, I mean, if England, you know, lose Oroby in the quarterfinal or have a, a rough pool stage, I don't think that will be the end of Borthwick. I don't think the RF, I mean, I think the RF would look absolutely ridiculous. I mean, crikey. You know they've invested. They've invested some time and confidence in Steve. They've said many great things about him. I don't think he said anything. Well, 
Steve being Steve, I'm not sure he said anything at all, really. But he's um, he's he's not not a guy to make grand, ridiculous claims on his own behalf. He's not stirred the hornet's nest like Eddie would have done. He's far more like Stuart Lancaster in terms of in terms of how he's handling the public facing role. So I don't think he's left himself a hostage to fortune. He's come in at the start of a World Cup year, much as Brian Ashton came in at the start of a, of, of a World Cup year in two thousand and seven. Um, of course, Ashton did get blown out uh, shortly afterwards, having reached the final uh, and put 30 points on Ireland at Twickenham in his last game. But that's another story that I've banged on about forever and a day. And um, uh, so we won't revisit that. But uh, no, I think I think Borthwick will be given time, certainly be given time. Whether he comes under pressure to change his coaching team, that's another thing. But I think he'll be he'll be he'll be with us this time next year, no matter what happens in the World Cup. Well, uh, his predecessor was with us this time last year, uh, but he's not anymore. Uh, the biggest thing that came out of Eddie Jones's squad announcement for the Rugby Championship was he uh, said that Josh Kemeny, uh, one of their flankers, could could play on the wing. He said previously Michael Hooper could have played on the wing. Uh, well, I mean, I, I don't even know what question to lead off with, really, about Eddie Jones at the Rugby Championship, but it seems hugely exciting. Uh, to see what Eddie Jones' Australia can do. Will they be, uh, the, well, will he get his his much-wanted quarter-final against England and then knock them out in, in the Rugby World Cup? Or will it be a bit of a flop? Um, again, I'm asking you guys to predict the future for about the fourth time in this episode, but Brendan, what do you think is going to happen? Well, well, if he's got one undoubted quality, Eddie, is that he is a short-term galvaniser. You know, there is no question that he is good at that. You know, his his sort of eloquence, it can jar after a while, but I think for a short period, it can really get people up. It can really inspire people. And, you know, we have to acknowledge that he came in after the disastrous 2015 World Cup and with pretty much the same group of players, plus Moro Itoji, who was unaccountably left out of the World Cup squad. With that same group of players, he managed to get a Grand Slam and a 3-0 series victory in Australia within six months. So that he's good at that. And I wouldn't be at all surprised if Australia don't play a few strokes in the championship. There is always a danger of it going the other way because, you know, um that's the way Eddie that's the way Eddie is. But I can see it working pretty well. And that whether that whether they can do that, have a good rugby championship and go into the World Cup with that momentum, I think they probably can. I think we're gonna see quite a fiery, sparky, um Australia side. And I thought Australia were pretty good in the autumn. I was amazed that we had all this disruption of Eddie coming in. They could have almost gone unbeaten in the autumn. They they lost all their matches marginally. They should have beaten Ireland. They should have beaten France, you know, away. And they had a second team out. They didn't even have a first team with us, mainly. So I think Australia have got, as ever, have got high-quality players. Um, and if... He's almost like a brain mechanic. mechanic. If you can just fine-tune them mentally... That'll be a very good side, uh, and as you say, you know it's going to be fascinating to see how, how they how they shape up under Eddie, and it's going to make for a very interesting, if abbreviated, rugby championship. It's two things with them to me. I mean, what they do at ten, uh, I still think that's. I, I mean, Ed, Eddie will know what he's going to do at ten, but I'm not sure, not sure anyone else is completely sure what's happening. Um, uh, I mean, they've got a they've got a terrific backline. Um, you know, with with Corabetti and people coming back, um, they're going to be really dangerous. Um, they, they've got the unpronounceable wing; it begins with N. 
um, who who uh, shone in the autumn. I'm not going there before anyone asked me to do that. I flatly refuse to pronounce that because I just make a tit of myself. But it's uh, I think he's uh, you know they, they've got they've got some they've got some real attacking edge. They're all they'll be good in the back row. They will be very good. They, they've got some good players that have Skelton and Nick Frost, let's say, or Arnold and what have you said. They're not going to be short of of of, of, of Humpty in in the second row. Terrific. So. What do they do at 10 and can they scrimmage? Can they scrimmage? Can they keep on the right side of the referee and bull the... Because they're not going to be the best scrimmages in the tournament, that's for sure. I mean, they've got old James Slipper. You've got two pose never fit. Um, you know, I mean, I admire, I admire these guys. I mean, I certainly admire Slipper, who's been who's been fantastic for them. But they're not a particularly good scrimmage inside. And as we know, the way the game is played today and the penalties that come out of scrums, that can really hurt you. So can they stay on the right side of the referees in scrum time and just get something close to parity? If they can get something close to parity at the set piece, they will be really dangerous, not just for England. They'll probably be far too dangerous for England with scrum parity. They will they will be dangerous for everyone. Yeah, Chris, I mean, typically the pre-World Cup Rugby Championship is a bit of a damp squib. Um, it doesn't, you know, there's not a huge amount riding on it. People effectively see it as warm-up games. Obviously, Australia stood out in 2015. They won it then, went on to, you know, have an amazing performance at that World Cup. Uh, South Africa in 2019, again, another story where they they really shone at that point and then went on to follow it up with the World Cup win. But going into this competition, there's a lot of anticipation. There. How important would you say this is for all of the teams in the competition? I do, I do think it's significant because you've got good sides playing against good sides and 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 m- momentum momentum does mean something at a World Cup. I mean, we spoke about 2007 earlier. I mean, before all the horrendous early bull games that England suffered, they'd gone to South Africa uh, with, a, with a very, very weak side because there were injuries all over the place and people were being rested and they were absolutely lashed. I mean... Crikey. But it, it did it did produce sort of your Mark Regans in your anti-commissals who have ended up playing quite a significant role in getting England in the final. So um I think it I think it is a chance. I mean, I saw the Springbok side for this weekend today. It's nowhere near full strength. So it'll be very interesting to see how Australia go against them this weekend. If Australia lose to an understrength Springbok side, it will be a blow to them. And Eddie will have to show some some of his legendary people skills to try and get people uh back up and firing for a game against, you know, a game against the All Blacks. Um yeah. I think that South Africa are boxing a little bit clever with their personnel. Of course, a lot of them don't play in South Africa. They don't spend that long together. Um, so that team building will be quite piecemeal at the moment. So I can understand why they're looking at new players or relatively unfamiliar players in international terms. Um, I mean, if, if Argentina could somehow do something against the All Blacks at the weekend, I mean, that would be extraordinary because I don't think the All Blacks are full of confidence. Um, I don't think the New Zealand rugby public is particularly full of confidence, which is unusual for them. I think we can agree. Um, uh, I do. I do think that that's a, they're in a state of flux. I'm still not sure everyone's entirely happy with Ian Foster as the All Blacks coach. I don't think he has. 
a massive amount of support. I think people are desperate to see Scott Robertson come in and, you know, I don't know, do his breakdancing or whatever it is he does. Um, so when, I, yeah, I, I, seven World Cups in a row after he's no, won seven I, Super <laughs> Indeed, I, I think all, I think all the sides in a rugby championship are in a slightly different place, which makes it which makes the tournament very interesting. I mean, it's a truncated tournament, obviously, because they're only playing each other once. Um, but it, it's unpredictable. It's very unpredictable. I, I wouldn't be surprised if South Africa won in New Zealand, because if they if they go at full tilt, it wouldn't surprise me at all. Um, so. So I I I would hate to put any money on anything going on here. Actually, I wouldn't say that Argentina are automatically going to finish bottom, and I wouldn't say that the All Blacks are automatically going to win the thing. I, I think anything can happen between those two those, those two extremes. Yeah, Brendan, just finish fin- finish yourself looking at those um those um, other three teams. Well, it strikes me as particularly important for Argentina. It, it, it always isn't. Any time together for Argentina is invaluable because they are so far flung. Um, and they, 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 they at least, they, I mean, they've got two away matches, but they at least start with a home match uh, against New Zealand. Uh, so that'll be a big one for them. Uh, I don't get a feel like I know what the top Argentina team looks like at the moment. I think there's quite a bit of rebuilding, especially in the back. They seem to change their back division from from match to match. So I think they need to settle. I mean, they've got some bloody good backs, but they need to settle on what their back division is and who their fly half is in particular. Uh, New Zealand, like like Chris says, uh, plenty of talent, but we just haven't really got a feel for whether they're all going to gel together straight away. But they have got some hellish players. There is quality in that squad. Uh, it's a World Cup year. You know, you kind of expect them to be galvanised. South Africa... Um, Listen, South Africa are so consistent. They, they they will be one of the, if not the team to beat in the World Cup. Uh, they are playing it clever again. They're a very far-flung squad. They haven't had all their top players in camp at all. Um, so they're, they're trying a few people out, I think, in this first match. Um, you, know, you never bet against South Africa, I'd say. The modern-day South Africa on, the, on these occasions. Somehow they, they get it done, but... Are they really putting huge import on winning the rugby championship this year? Probably not. You know, it's a World Cup. They're looking to defend the World Cup. Everything, all their selections will be around hitting the World Cup running. Right, predictions time then. Uh, I think we might as well do a little predictions, Lee. We're not going to do all of them at the beginning of the tournament. Um, Sorry about not warning you about this guys by the way uh but we're gonna do it week by week uh because ollie will take over for the final week of the tournament for me i'll uh i'll start with my own just to make sure that you're all feeling comfortable with this uh so i've put south africa to beat australia 27 17 and i've got new zealand beating argentina 29 18 chris start with you uh how confident are you that you're not going to finish last in a group of three uh, not confident at all because um, I mean, do, do you do you do you really think I'd be here doing this podcast if I was good at predictions? I'd be down the bookies, wouldn't I? I mean, I would, I would be I would be unavailable for um, <laughs> this kind of thing. I'm, I'm, and my track record is 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 poor on all kinds of predictions. Although I did get Theo Dan, the young Saracens hooker, right in um, 
in my wafflings in the rugby paper a couple of weeks ago. So, uh, so there you go. But I also, I also said that Mitchell and, Mer- and, and Mercer would be in 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 the uh, World Cup squad unless Borthwick had a brainstorm. So either he's had a brainstorm, or I yeah, was. Wrong. I, th- I think I think the former could actually be true. Well, it's well, well. I would like to think so. Um, I th- I I think I think Argentina will get within a score of the All Blacks, uh, and I think. I haven't seen the Wallaby team. The Wallaby team has not been named as we speak. But the South Africa team is not particularly familiar to many of us. There's no Marks. There's no Etzebeth. There's no Khaleesi because he's still coming back from injury. There's no Jasper Visa. There's no Pollard. There's no Dialende. So I think the Wallabies will win. And I think they'll win by... Six. I really like that because I went for generic predictions, expecting Australia to be pretty undercooked and the SA, uh, South Africa's depth to come all the way through. But, Brendan, what do you reckon? Um, when in doubt, go with the home team. Uh, so, an unfamiliar South Africa to beat uh, possibly undercooked Australia and them being the away team. Like Chris, I think Argentina might give a very good account of themselves against New Zealand. I don't, don't think they've ever won at home, have they? Obviously, they had the, the famous away victory that was in Australia. Um, no, New Zealand will nick that, as they tend to, by uh, a late try from about 80 yards. Um, so, South Africa breaker. and New Zealand for me. Heartbreaking try for Argentina. To Absolutely It'll be, yeah. And uh, do you want the tournament prediction? <laughs> Yeah, well, I'll tell you what, I mean, we'll, we'll get exact we'll get exact predictions. I'll get you to email over your exact predictions and we'll stick them on the website. Um, yes. We could get a one, two, three, four. Yeah, I think that would be quite fun. Here's a man who thinks he knows a thing or two. No, no, I think it's always good fun to show how little you know. <laughs> to be honest, you can put them, you can, I could genuinely put them in any order. That's that's how unpredictable. Well, yeah, yeah. it's, it's a win-win. It's a win-win. A wonderful this. tournament. Uh, go on then, bit, Brendan. Let's, let's have your one, two, three and four. Well, um... Having said that, I think New Zealand are nick it. Uh, I think um, Australia have got two home matches, and I think they might really kick on quite quickly under Eddie after uh, initial defeat in South Africa. So uh, I think it might... might OK, let's go for Australia second. South Africa taking their time, um, finishing third. Probably equal points with Australia, but points difference or something, whatever it is, decided. Argentina, bottom, but improving. Expect me to respond to this. Um, <laughs> Australia playing the All Blacks in Melbourne, I think. Um, yeah, they're certainly at home, aren't they? Too, I have a feeling that game's in, in Melbourne. I, I, I'm going to go uh, Australia to win the title. I love that. New Zealand, South Africa. Argentina. Interesting. So all you've done is swapped New Zealand and Australia with Brendan's predictions after slagging them off. Yeah, but there are only four teams. I mean, there's, only, there's, there's, there's only so many combinations. <laughs> there's only, there's so many. <laughs> <laughs> I, I reckon there's a way to that wrong. You know, there's there's so much you can do and it. still win regardless of the I, outcome. I mean, I mean, of course, of course, of, of course, if 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 uh, Georgia were in it, they'd obviously they'd obviously 
do a clean sweep. And, <laughs> and by way of flicking up two fingers to world rugby and good on them. Yeah, yeah, that would be great. Um, we were going to talk about the uh, world uh, rugby, the new world rugby tournament, but we ran out of time. I do want to finish with a piece that John Newcomb wrote in the rugby paper last week. It's 25 years since the end of the uh, tour of hell. Uh, essentially, I just want to get uh, your reflections on that. Where were you? How were you following it? Um, and what did you make of it at the time? Uh, England lost, I believe. 76 nil to Australia, which is a record defeat. They were 60... lucky to get nil. Yeah, 64 22. Well, Wilco missed two penalties in front, more or less two, in front of the post believe. in the first half. And nil nil, wasn't it? Nil, nil. And, they, and they still picked him. Yeah. In 2003. He showed no yeah, talent at all in that first half. A failure he proved to be. Um, uh, I was, you go first, Brent. No, I, I wasn't there. I watched it on the. Were you covering it live, Chris? I was there. Yeah, no, I wasn't oh there. I was, I was watching it on Did TV. You, were you there for the whole six weeks? I, I was there for the whole thing. Um, uh, it was it was interesting. Uh, Matt Dawson pulled out of the... The first game was against Australia in Brisbane. Um, you know, it was a weakened England side. Uh, one of the great rugby quiz questions is to name the England side who started that game. And if you don't know it, if you don't just know it, you'll never get it because there are people in that side like Scott Benton at Scrum Half, um, uh, Steve Ravenscroft in the centre. Matt Perry played at outside centre. Uh, uh, ben Sternham played in the back row. Richard Poole-Jones played in the back row. Tony Diffrose skipper. Tony Diffrose was skipper because Matt Dawson, with his usual prescience, decided that that was a game he might be injured for. I'm not saying that he was deliberately injured, but he pulled out with an injury. Tony Diffrose ran out at the head of a, a barely recognisable England side between along an avenue of fireworks. Thought he'd hang a quick left before getting to the last fireworks, so he tried to go through the fireworks and one sort of more or less went up his backside, which was not a good start uh, to the game. And there were also... Three blokes dressed in Hawaiian shirts who were doing press-ups behind the point uh, behind the sticks every time the Wallabies scored, but they were cumulative press-ups, so they had to start from nil each time. <laughs> by the time the Wallabies, by the time the Wallabies, and it was a warm night, by the time the Wallabies had scored the eleventh try or whatever it was, Tony Diprose, who was a, the, the nicest guy on earth, was under the sticks having had a firework up his bum to start with and then been on the wrong end of a massive record defeat. And the worst moment he said to me afterwards was one of the guys in the Hawaiian shirts covered in sweat, completely hanging from a million press-ups, coming up and said, oh, mate, why don't you blugs bloody tackle? Which is just humiliating. Um, oh. I then interviewed Graham Rowntree, uh, on the way to New Zealand, he was loose head proper, you know, in, in the first choice loose head proper on that tour. And he said, well, if we don't improve, we'll find ourselves in a sea of shit, he said poetically, which was quoted in the pages of The Independent. He was right. There were two games against the All Blacks, plus game, uh, games against New Zealand A, who were brilliant, the New Zealand Maori, who were brilliant, and a New Zealand Academy 15, who were unfamiliar but borderline brilliant and in, i mean england were it was just a terrible tour i mean it was diabolical it was hellish really 
And at the end of all this, after rousing the management camp between the disagreements, public disagreements between Clive Woodward and John Mitchell and Clive Woodward and Roger Rutley. And oh, I mean, it wasn't a happy trip. For I mean, above and beyond the results, it was not a happy trip. Uh, they ended up in, in Cape Town playing against the Springboks in a deluge and they lost 18-0 and it was an extraordinarily brave performance. I mean, I think the conditions slowed the box up a little bit that day, but it was a very brave, it was a very brave performance um, against huge odds. And they actually came back from, from that from that one game feeling a hell of a lot better than, about themselves than they may have than they may have done. And they discovered um, a few World Cup winners. And they dis- and they discovered some they discovered some World Cup winners, yeah. I mean, absolutely. It was it was an it was an extraordinary it was an extraordinary tour. Um, the selection and what have you, part of it was forced on Clive Woodward. But once he realised that they were going to be under strength anyway, he just left a whole bag of people behind. And I could see his logic uh, in that. You know, there were there were. I mean. No side would undertake that kind of tour. Not, not, no Northern Hemisphere side would undertake that kind of tour again. I mean, the fly to Australia, then five games in New Zealand, um, and then fly all the way back and just drop in on the Springboks in Cape Town on the way home. I mean, you're asking, you're asking quite a bit of people, I think. So, but it was, uh, it was, uh, it was unmissable. I mean, for those of us who didn't have to play, it was hugely enjoyable because it's always easier to write about a rubbish team than it is to write about a good one. Yeah, that's not, that's one I'm of the truths of journalism. By the way, I'm actually finding that already. Uh, Brendan, how, were you in, were you involved at all in it? Were no, you I was it just, or were you I was, just watching um, it from from home. I was on other duties, athletics and stuff that summer. Um, but I remember I watched all the matches on the TV, um, live coverage of all the games. I just remember being gobsmacked at the sheer margin of defeat in that first match against Australia. I, I didn't think it was possible for any England team ever lose 76 nil it was just it was mind-boggling um i also think i don't know if we are going to mention that this new international league but chris mentioned the schedule there unless i've got this wrong in my head if this thing goes ahead it seems like england will be going down to play new zealand australia and south africa possibly in three matches in in, in one given summer um which doesn't seem to be all that intelligent given what we're meant to be doing on, on players playing load and travel, etc. Uh my final th- thing on the tour of hell is we did touch on it. A lot of good, not a lot of good, some good came out of it. Certainly Phil Vickery, Johnny Wilkinson, Josh Lucy, Matt Dawson. I think Danny Grewcock was also a member of the World Cup squad. You certainly learn one or two guys who were made of different stuff from a tour like that. Um and that that was a you know a plus for Clive Woodward as he started to build the squad because he, he already knew he had a, a caucus of pretty good players. It's just a matter of getting them far in the right direction. But no, you'd never have a tour like that again. Um, complete shambles from England's point of view. An awesome display by New Zealand in terms of their strength of rugby. As Chris was saying, those midweek teams that they played were fantastic. They were almost as good as the All Blacks. And you think, where, you know, they've got 120 players almost with the same quality. Where are they getting these guys? Um, and then they, they completely bombed in the 99 World Cup. So what do we know? Yeah, exactly. Well, England will be hoping that they do slightly better in their warm-up matches this year, I imagine. 
and uh, follow it up with a better World Cup than we had in 1999. Uh, gents, thank you very much uh, for today. Um, and thanks to everyone who's who's listening and watching. Didn't didn't have a guest on today and, and not as many columnists as we used to, uh, but I hope people found it interesting. Uh, we'll be looking at those predictions next week. I'll be back again. Oh, good. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> hopefully Nick will be back again as well, and I'll make sure I get a prediction from him. So he doesn't come onto the podcast, and, and well, he'll get a, he, he, so he can have a. I think he only misses out just he can to have a prediction next week on this week's games. <laughs> well, if he doesn't get those right, then he really. We we'll just spent we we'll just spent an hour and a half talking about the predictions. Um, <laughs> uh, no, uh, thanks a lot, guys. Thanks very much, um, and yeah, I'll see you next week. Okay, Cheers, well, mate. go well. Cheers, Thank guys. you. The Rugby Paper is available to buy every Sunday. And to make sure you don't miss it, subscribe to our print, digital and online options at therugbypaper.co.uk forward slash subscriptions. That's therugbypaper.co.uk forward slash subscriptions to get all our content for as little as 14p per day.